Hey, so I celebrated, Katie and I celebrated something cool today. Ready? Oh, She's seven months old today. She's absolutely precious. Uh, we, have dis- we have discovered, in this last couple of weeks, we've been doing something that we knew was coming, but we didn't really look forward to. The doctor said a month ago, listen, it's time to get her out of your room, out of the bassinet, and put her in the crib. I was like, okay, let's go. You know, I was excited about that part because I could sleep, hopefully. And uh, <coughs> Katie, not so much. So we put her in the crib, and the doctor also said, not only that, you need to cut everything cold turkey. I'm like, what do you mean by everything? Everything that soothes her and puts her to sleep, cut it out. I'm like, so like, what do you mean? She says, pacifier, swaddle, you're singing, you're rocking. I'm like, huh. Like, what are you supposed to do? Put her in the crib when it's time to go to bed and let her cry it out. I'm like, she's been wonderful. It actually has been a good thing other than a couple nights. Listen, it actually was an interesting thing. So the first night was absolutely miserable because we were waking up like every hour just to hear her scream. And then it's gotten better. We went one night where it was like six hours where she didn't wake up. I'm like, oh, this is amazing. This is a miracle. And... But recently, and this is where it's been a struggle, you can kind of see closely in this picture, see those two things right there? I now understand why they scream their head off sometimes. How many of you guys, adults, students, how many of you have your wisdom teeth in? Not like cut out, like in. Do you remember how, like, how painful that was? Was it painful for you when they came in? Oh, I was a senior in high school, I, I was crying like a baby. Like, now I understand why it's so painful. So last night I finally had my breaking point. It's been fine. We're, we're adjusting. She's going to bed a lot earlier. She's waking up a lot earlier. But it's been better until last night. Last night, Katie goes to bed. She was like falling asleep watching TV like 845, like an old woman. And uh, she thought, I'm just going to go to bed. So I sat up a little bit, was watching the NBA dunk contest, which just if you watched that, that was awful. That was robbery. Um, that was terrible. But anyways, 1130, she starts screaming through the monitor. So I'm watching it on the monitor, just kind of seeing it, make sure, all I'm doing is make sure she doesn't like roll over and get stuck, she, like, it's been amazing how she can move, like, we'll watch the baby monitor, like, it does like a, like a recap video the next morning, and she'll go like 360s, it's amazing how she just kind of spins around in the bed, and all of a sudden she gets pinned up against the wall, and it's like, hey, help me, and last night, I finally had it, I couldn't handle anymore, it was like blood-curling scream for an hour, the doctor said 30 minutes, she usually falls back asleep, which is, it's been true. After about 30 minutes of screaming, she falls right back asleep. An hour in, I'm like, I can't handle it anymore. Can't handle it. And as soon as I get up to go walk back to the room, Katie texts me and says, check her diaper. Okay. So I go in there, I just like pick up her legs and go, nah, nothing. And I'm like, I'll go ahead and just check. So I turn on the nightlight and her face is like pale white and her eyes are just red. From just from the screaming and all the stress and just the tears have been flowing for an hour. I'm like, oh my gosh, poor child. And I just like picked her up. I'm just like holding her, trying to get her to comfort her. And like nothing's working. And nothing. I'm like, so I tried to sing to her. That usually works. And that wasn't, wasn't happening last night. I'm like, I try to rock her. I even try to like play with her. I start throwing her up in the air. I do it easily. Um, and it just, she loves it. But like last night, nothing was working. And she wasn't, all it was, she was in so much pain. And like, I'm now understanding some parental fears here. I don't want my kid to go through pain. 
I don't. Like, I want to be able to go in there, fix it. I want to be able to control it. I want to be able to take care of it. But I also have to battle that idea of, if I, don't, if I, like, if I take away every single pain, she's never going to grow up. If I try to take away all the pain that she's experienced right now, if I could give anything to take away the, the teething pain, you realize in like four years I'm going to have to like puree every bit of her food. She'll never have the teeth. Like this, this pain that she's going through is necessary, but we've been like, avoid, like praying that it wasn't going to go that quickly, but we're like seven months in, it's gone by real quick. Yeah, we're already in this process that we've been dreading for a few months, that knowing that when that came, when those teeth started coming through, it's going to be like chaos, and it's been chaos. But it's so true in life. There's, you know, a lot of things that we don't want to go through. There's a lot of pain that we experience that we don't want. But sometimes that pain is necessary. Sometimes it's what we need to go through. Throughout the centuries, there's been a confusion even amongst Christians, even amongst Christian teachers that said, if you're a Christian, you'll never experience pain. It's not true. I've even heard a pastor, and I know Becky's watching, I think a couple other adults have watched it. I've heard a pastor in a documentary saying, I never get sick because I love Jesus. I'm like, that's garbage. Apparently, I don't love Jesus because like, I've been sick for like three weeks with his head cold, you know? Like, no, but that, that is a common belief amongst people, amongst Christians, that if we love Jesus, we'll be free of pain, we'll be free of suffering. I've even heard other people say that you should never go to a doctor because Jesus is the ultimate healer. And if you go to a doctor, that means you don't have enough faith. Or even people who consider themselves wealthy and all the materials that they have, that has come because of their faith in Jesus. They have riches because they believe. And if you're poor, that must mean you don't have enough faith or you don't love Jesus. Or even if you're homeless or down and out or you're struggling with addiction, or you clearly don't love Jesus enough. And you might think that none of you guys may, under, may think through that. You guys may believe that none, that's not what you believe, but that is actually a very common thing. All this points to a misunderstanding of pain and suffering. Here's a lie that we have now come to believe in society, in this world. The presence of pain means the absence of faith. That's a very common lie that even Christians believe. That the presence of pain means the absence of faith. That if you have suffering in your life, Clearly you've done something wrong. If you go back into the New Testament, when Jesus is going around healing people, he comes up to the blind people, he comes up to the people who are, who are paralyzed, and they say, what did this man do? What did he do to be blind or to be paralyzed? What sin did he do? What sin did his mom and dad do? They believe that their parents' sin would cause them to have problems and then them not have enough faith. That is simply not true. What we want to hear tonight and what we're going to main theme of everything tonight is that in Jesus there's always a purpose in pain. Everything you go through, every bit of suffering, sorrow, heartache, everything that you go through, there is a purpose behind it. We're going to be spending time in James chapter 1 uh, on your, in your Bibles on the table, which is on page 950. Uh, go ahead and grab one of those and turn to it while I recap last week. This idea of purpose and pain. Last week was all about your identity, that your identity has nothing to do with what you do. Just because you're a soccer player... You play soccer does not mean that's your entire identity. Just because you're musically talented does not your entire identity. Just because you play a sport, just because you're so-and-so's child, or just because you're popular or not popular, that is not your entire identity. It has nothing to do with what you do. But your identity does determine what you do. Who you believe, who you belong to, will determine how you live your life. We said that James, who was the brother of Jesus, identified himself 
as a servant of Jesus. And out of that identity came everything else, this new perspective. That's where we are tonight. So James chapter 1, a context for you that I did not cover last week. James, brother of Jesus, apostle, church leader, is writing to a bunch of first century Christians. These people probably became Christians shortly after Jesus' ascension. Within the first five to ten years, they became Christians. Who was in charge of the entire world practically at that time? Anybody remember? Starts with an R, ends with Ohm. Rome. Very good. Brian, that, that clue helped you out, didn't it? <laughs> Rome was in charge. And because Rome was in charge, there was a lot of persecution. This growing number of Christians were scattering throughout all the countryside. At this point, probably there was only in Palestine, originally where the Jews were, there's probably only a hundred, couple hundred thousand Jews even left in that area, Christians in that area. But throughout the entire Roman Empire, it's grown to about five million. Compared to the entire world, five million is not that big. They were very much the minority. And they were facing persecution. They were facing imprisonment. They were facing just obstacles left and right. And they thought, you know, we're not getting accepted as new Christians in the Roman Empire. Maybe our acceptance comes with our moms and dads, aunts and uncles back in the Jewish faith. But they go back home, there's no home anymore. Now that they've abandoned that faith, now they're being abandoned by their families. There's nothing but opposition and obstacles for these people. This was a terrible time for Christians. And they were scattered all throughout the countryside. I just lost my page. That's why he starts off this letter like this. Chapter 1, verse 1. James, a servant of God, and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, which means the scattering of all of them throughout the entire Roman Empire. It says, greetings to you. This is the opening of his letter. Here's how he starts. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let the steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So he starts off with this greeting. Remember we said last week about his identity, and what we want you to hear tonight also is that your, our identity in Christ will always give us a new perspective. James now has a new perspective on everything. He no longer sees himself just as Jesus' brother. He now sees himself as a servant to Jesus, and that has changed everything about him. It's changed everything the way he views about life. It changes how he views his finances, how he views his work, how he views his faith. And what we're going to talk about tonight is trials, and next week will be all about temptation. And he starts off this letter to these people who are undergoing extreme persecution with a, with a simple phrase, count it all joy. Think through this with me for a second. These people who are facing imprisonment, these people who are going through extreme persecution, facing all these obstacles, he starts it off with, be joyful. Now imagine yourself in this position. You've either been in prison your mom and dad has been killed because of this persecution. You may have no job. Your families may abandon you. And you get a letter that says, hey, be joyful. Or Bob Marley, don't worry, be happy, right? Like this is what it's doing. The other translation means to be supremely happy. Does that not sound completely irrational? Like in the midst of all your sorrow, no matter what you're facing, I know it might suck right now, but be happy, be joyful. On the surface, that sounds absolutely a terrible way to start off a letter. To the people who are facing this crazy chaos in their life. I remember the first time I heard this was actually a freshman in college. I was getting ready to study it in uh, my freshman Bible study, but I went home and I went to a 
revival service out Pine Grove Baptist out in Route 2. And the pastor was preaching through this, these few verses. And he said that phrase, Count on all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds. I said, why in the world would you ever count on those joy facing a trial? He compared it to learning how to ride a bike. <clears throat> how many of you guys remember that day when you learned how to finally ride a bike and you're finally on your own? I was living in Missouri. I love this story. I was living in Missouri. Finally got the training wheels off. I'm like, this is, I'm ready. And our house was street level, but our garage went down the hill under the house. And I'm going all throughout the neighborhood. I'm flying. I go down that turn. I'm like, I'm going to go down the hill into a driveway. And most of you guys don't remember this because I think they kind of stopped these. The brakes where you just went backwards, that was the kind of brakes I had. Well, what happens when you're going all out speed downhill and you slam on those back brakes? What happens? You launch. Even though I had a helmet on, I somehow found a way to hit my forehead off a pine tree. Like I just went flying right into the branches and just hit the trunk. And I come through, I had a scab like that big for like a week. But remember, I never wanted to get back up on that bike again. Never wanted to do it. But my dad said, no, we're going to keep doing this. You got to learn how to do this. You got to learn how to get back on your bike. So he'd get me back up on that bike, hold on to the back of the seat, and just ride me down the neighborhood until I was confident again. And the pastor that I heard say that was like, this is exactly what this pastor is saying. Consider it pure joy when you run head first into a pine tree. I'm like, that is stupid. No one says, huh, I'm glad I did that. He goes, there's a reason for it. There's a purpose behind all this. Here's what James is not saying, though. He is not saying, look at your trials and be joyful in those specific trials. Like, don't look at your cancer scare and go, I'm so glad I have cancer. That's not what he's saying. He's saying be joyful in the circumstances and in the moment around it. Because if we start believing that we're supposed to be joyful in the trials, we'll start celebrating grief. We'll celebrate defeat. I don't do that. That's not what he's doing here. He's challenging us to change our perspective, to stop looking at the circumstances, stop looking at the consequences, and start looking at something different. To count as joy means to look ahead. When you count something, you're counting up to something. It means look forward, look forward at something that is coming. So in this idea, this idea of I am in agony, I'm lonely, I am in so much pain, but right now I'm not going to look at what's around me. Instead, this idea of counting as joy means you're going to make a deliberate decision. A deliberate decision for something. That decision means that I'm going to consider all the circumstances, I'm going to consider all the consequences, I'm going to consider all the suckiness of life. And right now, instead of looking at all of that, I'm going to look at something different, something better that brings joy. Which is what led Paul to be the one who wrote stuff like 2 Corinthians 7, verse 4. It says, in all affliction, I'm overflowing in joy. In all pain, I'm overflowing with joy. He also wrote in Philippians chapter 3 that we should rejoice in the Lord always. Not just when we're comfortable. Not just when it's happy. Not just when we're good. The second thing that James wants us to hear, the first one was kind of all joy. The second one is that trials are not avoidable, but inevitable. You can't avoid trial. You ever been in that conversation where someone's wronged you and you know you need to have that conversation? You need to have that conversation, but you think, how long can I put that off? I'll put it off, and I don't want to do it. It's going to make me uncomfortable. I'm not going to do it. 
and the next thing you know, you're interacting with them more and more for some reason. Like, you're just like, oh, man, why do I keep seeing them? Like, why do they keep popping up in my path? Like, they annoyed me, they hurt me, now I just keep seeing them. And that conversation is just stewing in your mind. I need to have this. And we're trying to avoid it. It's going to happen. That conversation is going to be held eventually. The same thing is true with your Christian life. This, this is the reason. Because we live this side of heaven, we're going to experience pain. We're going to experience loss. We're going to experience heartache. We're all going to die. That's 100% fact. Unless Jesus comes back right this second, we're all going to die. Sorry to like burst your bubble. Like No one's ever going to live to be 100 and whatever, 37. Not going to happen. I don't know why you'd even want to. That's just me. But it's all inevitable. You're all going to face trials, and you're all going to face different temptations. Every single one of these adults in the room can tell you numerous trials that they have faced in their life. And you all might sit here and think, I don't know, I just, I, not, not that many trials I've gone through. But those adults who have lived long enough and go, yeah, this one, this one, this one, this one, then she was born, then I'm just kidding. Uh, but that's what it is. We're going to face it. It is inevitable. Because we have hearts that are full of sin, hearts that are deceitful, a world corrupted by sin, a world that's just going to hell. It's just the way it is. We're going to face trials. Nobody, nobody can ever say, I've never faced a trial. Just like that pastor said, I've never been sick. Bullcrap, you get sick all the time. I'm just going to say it. Unless you're like pumping steroids every single day, I don't know how you're not getting sick. But you're going to get sick. You're going to face these trials. But when we do, James is writing here to tell us what perspective we're supposed to have. Because just like these Christians in this time, we're going to feel alienated. We're going to feel like we're unpopular. We're going to feel like we're lost. We're going to feel like we're broken. And in that moment, James is telling us that we're going to have an irrational joy. An irrational joy that doesn't make sense. The, world, the world's rational thought, the way the world thinks, the way the cultural thinks, is if, if you have brokenness in your life, stay broken. If you have sorrow in your life, stay sorrowful. If, if you have pain in your life, just have a pity party all the time. And then Jesus comes in and is like, no, no, no. I have this irrational idea of finding joy in the midst of all that. The world may deem that irrational, but with Jesus, that is completely rational. And here's why. A Christian faith calls us as believers to look beyond the pain. Stop looking at what is right in front of you and start looking past that. What is going to happen at the end of this? What is this doing now? Stop looking at the circumstances and look forward. He moves on to say there's absolute purpose in the pain. The purpose is found in a couple different things. First is the testing of your faith. He says in verse 3, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness or perseverance or endurance. Another person wrote staying power or heroic endurance or fortitude. That's what James is talking about. That If the testing of your faith, what you're going through right now, is only testing you, and if you overcome that test, if you are able to stay obedient during that test, that test will produce something greater down the road. If you don't, then you're going to keep going through that test over and over and over again, expecting different results. But all this only occurs in repeated testing. We just sang a song, and I didn't ask you all to sing it. I was glad you did. You all just sang New Wine. You guys understand the concept of that? That through him making new wine out of us, he's going to crush us, Impress us. It's insane. It's not just like, oh, here's your happy little life. God ain't Bob Ross. You know, he's not going to end up painting like a happy little life, a happy little tree for you. No, he's like, we're going to go through some uh, awful stuff in this world. 
awful trials, awful temptations, but there's a purpose in all of this. And that continual testing is for a reason. I remember my dad said this when I was playing soccer, and any athlete in here, best advice I was ever given, here you go. Always stay strong between the ears. My coach, uh, Kenny uh, coach, Coach Fossman, put a major emphasis on bodybuilding, like for getting, like lifting for soccer season. I'm just going to say it. The program was called Bigger, Faster, Stronger. It was a stupid program because it was better for football players, not for soccer players. We didn't need to be this massive, bulky people on a soccer field. It just didn't make sense. Like, Hudson is bulking up, if you haven't noticed this. He's bulking up. He's wrestling and he's doing football. It makes sense for those two sports. You look, look at you. Huh? You got to get new shirts. I put you on the spot and embarrass you a little bit. But no. I remember him talking to me one time about playing soccer and how he was pretty much a little bone crusher on the field. He's like, he's like I'm, a, I'm a little enforcer. I was going around hitting everybody, which I was like, I'm glad I didn't play with you. But no, I didn't need to be able to bench press 400 pounds to be on a soccer field. It didn't make sense. Our coach would always like, Let's, what's your max? It doesn't matter what my max is. It didn't matter at the time. It, was like, it doesn't really do anything for a soccer player. But what my dad always says, what, what you're doing as you continually put in the work, continually go through that test, continually lift those weights, as you continue to get stronger and better, you're getting stronger between the ears, mentally. So in my mind, I think Hudson's actually the same way. This is why I put you on the spot. There's no one on the field stronger than me. That's how I always thought. There might be someone bigger. There might be someone physically stronger. But mentally, I'm going to outwork you. I'm going to outbeat you. You're not going to get the ball from me. If you take it, I'm going to get it back. I'll get a yellow card, maybe a red card, but I'll get it back. That's how I thought. But always being strong between the ears. It's the same concept. That as you continually put in the work, as you continually go through this testing, you're becoming stronger between the ears. You're getting stronger mentally, physically, spiritually. It's the same idea as you think about a butterfly. When that butterfly is in that cocoon. Did you know if you go ahead and like slice it and let it open, it's going to die? Like you watch that, like the butterflies like struggle. And moths do the same thing. They struggle as they're trying to break through that cocoon. If you go over there and you slice that open, they would actually die because what you're doing is taking away the opportunity for them to get stronger. They're not going to have the power. They're not going to have the strength to survive beyond that. As a parent, that's what I was talking about earlier. I don't want her to, you know, if I go through this whole life trying to shelter her free from all pain, she's going to grow up. All of a sudden, the pain's going to hit her hard. It's the same concept. But not only does this produce perseverance, it also produces maturity, he says in verse 4. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Other translations change that to, may you reach your full maturity, may you reach perfection. You and I will never reach perfection here. I hope you know that. You're not perfect. You guys are great, but you're not perfect. You're never actually going to reach perfection in this life. But the testing that you're going through, the Endurance that you're having to face now is all it is, all it is doing is producing a perfection that you will reach in heaven because of Jesus. That's what we're producing now. And there are things that I deal with today. And I think the adults would say the same thing. 28, 35, 40, whatever you are. It <laughs> Sorry. Whatever you guys face today, can you imagine adults facing today what you are facing today, but at this age, 13, 15, 17? Can you imagine going through what you guys go through as adults 
but facing that at 16 and 17. I cannot imagine, I'm just going to say it this way, this is a playful idea, I cannot imagine changing a diaper only three years ago. My parenting would have been a lot different three years ago. Why? My maturity was a lot different three years ago. God knew in his timing when it was okay for me to have a kid. And there was going to be a lot of pruning, a lot of work, a lot of effort, a lot of testing, a lot of perseverance that was going to have to take place before that kid could ever come. And guess what? There's going to be something 12 years down the line, 15 years down the line. She's going to come home and say, hey, I'm going out on a date tonight. I'm going to be like, oh, here comes the testing again. I can't imagine going through this 15 years ago. Because as we go through this life, we're going to be t- continue to be tested. We're going to be continue to be pressed and crushed. All for the sake of enduring what's coming later. You guys as teenagers now, you might be facing different obstacles, different trials, but they're all for your benefit. Maybe not now, but definitely for later. The things you go through at this age will help you down the road. But the ultimate purpose here, the ultimate reason we have a purpose in the pain is the third thing James tells us. This is in verse 12. It says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. At the end of our pain is a reward in Jesus. We're not going throughout this life with nothing to live for. Sometimes we think there's nothing to live for. There's nothing to gain in this life. But in all reality, the only thing that we want to gain, the only thing we, as Christians, the only thing that we want, the only thing we desire, we're going to get in the end. At the end of that is the ultimate reward, the ultimate trophy, the ultimate prize, and that is Jesus says, I'll give you the crown of life. What does that mean? What does it mean to get the crown of life? It means that you're going to have eternal life with Jesus. But all that comes after years and years of trials, temptations, overcoming those, facing obstacles, going through hardship, going through heartache, going through blessings, going through great things, going through terrible things, going through crap. And all of a sudden at the end, it's like, here's your reward. And when you receive that reward, you're going to look back and go, it was all worth it. My favorite movie ever, it's not my notes, but my favorite movie ever is Shawshank Redemption. Most of you guys probably haven't seen it, probably for good reason. Um, It's a great movie. Andy Dufresne is wrongfully imprisoned for killing his wife, allegedly. He walked down on his wife being murdered. Excuse me. He goes to prison for life. He goes to prison for life, and he's, he has this idea of hope. And one day he'll get out. One day he'll be proven innocent. He keeps trying, trying, and trying to be proven innocent. But while in prison, he's going through a lot of terrible stuff, a lot of terrible stuff. And that by the end of the movie, you think Andy just has no hope. All of his friends are dead. All of his friends are either getting out or they're going to the grave. He has no more hope. But at the end, he secretly reveals that he's been planning this amazing escape the entire time he's been in prison. He's dug through the walls. Spoiler. He goes through the walls into the plumbing. He busts through the plumbing and he crawls out the crap pipe. The sewage. He crawls through rivers and rivers of you know what. And he falls out the end. My favorite movie scene ever. He falls out the end of that scene. Out of the end of that pipe into a river. And he just strips himself of all his prison clothes. All that nastiness. And he goes on to a brand new life. That's what we're talking about here. But you're going to go through rivers and rivers of you-know-what throughout this life. I promise you. But at the end of it, you'll come out clean on the other side, just like he did, if you remain true to the person who created you. So for us here tonight, I don't know what trial you're going through. I don't know what circumstances you guys are currently in. You guys might be thinking, I'm not facing a trial. That's great. 
I'm glad right now you're not facing a trial, but here's my challenge to you. If you're not facing a trial, get ready. Be ready. So spend time in your word. Spend time in prayer. Spend time with fellowship with other people. Because when that day comes and you do face a trial, you're going to have to fall back on something. I'd rather you fall back on Jesus than on yourself. Every time. There are people in this room who I count as dear friends because of how they've walked me through trials. I'm able to fall back on them whenever I go through things. They're able to fall back on me when they go through things. And I don't know what, what you're going through. Your family might be in chaos. Your parents might be struggling with something. You might be struggling with something. You might be hiding something. You might be struggling with some kind of addiction already. You might be struggling with a certain sin. You may have gotten terrible news recently. I don't know what trial it is that you're going through. Like last week, it might be an identity crisis. But if you're going through something now, listen to me when I say this. There is purpose in what you're going through. You won't understand it. There are times in my life, and I know adults will do the same thing, two, three, four years removed from a situation, you go back and you start rationalizing, I think I went through this for this purpose. Then three years later, you realize that purpose may not have been what you thought it was. It may have been something even better or even greater. Because guess what? I've not reached my full potential, so whatever I've gone through has not gotten me just to be here. You guys have not reached your full potential. What you guys have gone through is not to get you to where you are now. It's going to take you to tomorrow, the next day, and the next day, until the very end when you reach that perfection. But here's the deal. To have joy in the midst of chaos, in the midst of a crisis, you have to make that deliberate decision to do so. You can't just say, no, I don't want to do it. I don't want to just sorrow. I want to keep my grief. I want to keep my pity party. It says you have to make a deliberate decision to count it as joy to look beyond what your circumstances are, to look beyond at Jesus and look only to him. And the reason why we do this is because Jesus did it. You realize this. Jesus came and lived a perfect life, a life that you and I could not live. He lived this life perfectly, even when he went through the same temptations and same trials you and I go through. You say, I don't think he went through the same temptation. He was Jesus. No, it says he went through temptation. We're going to talk about that next week. He was tempted and tried in every way, yet he did not sin. Even when he was going to the cross, guess where his eyes were fixed? His eyes weren't fixed at the cross. His eyes weren't fixed at the grave. His eyes weren't fixed at sin. His eyes weren't fixed at any of that stuff. His eyes were fixed on the joy that was before him in heaven. That's why it says in Hebrews chapter 12, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses... Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely to us. And let us run with endurance or perseverance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, listen to this, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Consider him who endured everything that you were supposed to endure. Consider him who persevered through everything you couldn't persevere. Consider him who went through every bit of hell so that you wouldn't have to, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. I love how it continues all the way down in verse 12. So therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight the paths of your feet so that when the lame may not be put out, excuse me, may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Pick up your feet. 
and walk. Look forward to what is coming. In a second, they're going to sing the song Highlands. I love this song. It's fantastic. You all listen to the words of this. In the highlands, in the heartache. These two very different moments in life, I'm still going to sing. I'm still going to rejoice. I'm still going to look forward. Because that's what we're supposed to do. That's what Jesus did. He looked forward to the joy that was coming so that you and I can look forward to that same joy and find purpose in what we suffer. Let's pray.